Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. It's going to be a wonderful day. I hope you're having a great day. We're going to have uh, Rob Bluey on the program in about 60 seconds. And then Dr. Rebecca Reed is going to be joining us again. And she's got a wonderful blog. She's a terrific storyteller, a great observer of all things. She'll be joining us in this hour. And then Dr. Mark Muskell will be with us in hour two, which is Ask the Professor. Get your questions ready. You can start texting them to me already. 877-933-2484. 877-933-2484. I know you got questions. I know you do. All right, so text them over. 877-933-2484. Let's take 60 seconds and bring on Rob. Grow in your faith every day through Faith Radio. We offer unique, original content through daily live and nationally recognized programs. You can find local airtimes for all your favorite shows by visiting MyFaithRadio.com and clicking on the Schedule tab. And if you ever miss a show, you can always listen to the podcast anytime. Check out your local schedule page under the Schedule tab at MyFaithRadio.com. Facing the future with confidence. Because Jesus is our source of hope. I love listening to Faith Radio, and it's always encouraging, and it's always a place to kind of hear confirmation of God's voice and what He's trying to speak in your life. I encourage everyone to listen in. Every time that I listen, everything is very timely for what I'm needing in my life, whether it's encouragement or direction or teaching. It always just feels like it's very timely. This is Faith Radio. All right, welcome back to the show. Awfully glad on Tuesdays I get a chance to talk to Rob Bluey, executive editor of The Daily Signal. Go to dailysignal.com. Rob, welcome to the show. It's great to be with you. Is there anything going on in Washington, D.C. today? It's a pretty quiet day. <laughs> Today is the start of the uh, the Senate's impeachment trial, so uh, there is a lot of activity happening in the U.S. Capitol, and of course it's a busy week because uh, we have all the other things that, uh, that that normally happen, including the March for Life later this week. So it is uh, it is an exciting week to be in Washington. That is uh, for sure. Where do you want to begin, Bill? <laughs> well, I want to I want to definitely talk about both. I was thinking about the impeachment trial, and it seems to me, and I could be all wrong about this because I'm wrong often, but it's it seems like it's similar to the Pro Bowl game. It's like it's on and it's televised, but nobody really cares. <laughs> right. <laughs> it certainly seems anticlimactic at this point. Uh, certainly um, the delay that happened after the House passed the articles of impeachment, and then, of course, uh, Speaker Pelosi held on to them for a while in hopes of extracting some sort of leverage from Senate Republicans. It didn't really play out the way that she had anticipated. And here we find ourselves in a situation where uh, I think most Americans, and perhaps unlike the Pro Bowl, they don't know what the outcome is going to be uh, precisely, but uh, there's a fairly good odds that this is uh, this is going to 
to be uh, ending in an acquittal. Uh, you, you would need about 20 different Republicans to break ranks with this president, which seems unlikely to happen. Uh, the biggest wild card, I think, is going to be whether or not they end up calling more witnesses to testify. Uh, there are some Republicans who appear uh, eager to do that uh, and side with the Democrats. Whether they have enough votes uh, still remains up in the air. But uh, it, is, uh, it is certainly a historic moment. That's, uh, this is the only the third time in our nation's history we've had an impeachment of a president uh, reach this point. Why weren't any of these witnesses called in the House? That's a really good question, uh, because in particular John Bolton, uh, he was somebody who had obviously already stepped down from the administration. He wanted the courts uh, to decide if he if he was allowed to testify. After the articles of impeachment were voted on, Bolton, of course, then came out and said that if he was subpoenaed, that he uh, he would testify. Uh, but that doesn't mean uh, that. that Basically, all that meant is that if the House wanted to subpoena him, which they could have done last week and and had him testify, uh, there wasn't anything standing in the way. Um, I think that part of it is done uh, to to add some drama to to what we're what we're watching. I think the Democrats again know that it's uh, very unlikely that they're they're going to end in this is going to end in in uh, in a uh, you know a, a, the president being removed from office. There's not 67 senators mm-hmm. right now who are able to do that, and the witnesses that they want to call are probably not going to convince anybody uh, to change their vote in that regard. So if they were called in the House, it uh, it would have delayed it perhaps a little bit longer. Um, but I, I, I honestly, I'm, I'm still not sure. I, I, Mitch McConnell, here's, here's one thing you have to say about Mitch McConnell. I know that he has his critics on both the right and the left, but he has been able to hold Republicans together uh, quite effectively, uh, whether it's through confirmation votes on judges or, or Trump's appointees. Or, uh, or, or certain policy matters. So I, I think that this president feels fairly confident that McConnell will do all he can uh, to prevent this from being dragged out even longer than, uh, than he would like it to be. Rob, do you have any speculation as to what the long game is for the Democrats? Well, it seems that, uh, look, uh, ever since Donald Trump was inaugurated, uh, which uh, we just marked uh, that, that date yesterday, January 20th, uh, the anniversary of that, uh, there were Democrats clamoring for impeachment way back then. Now, uh, Speaker Pelosi held off, uh, and some more of the prominent members of the party decided not to take that step until this summer. But it seems that uh, there's a true political or partisan angle to doing this. I mean, if you look back at the Andrew Johnson and Bill Clinton impeachments, there were other factors associated with that criminal activity. And, and in fact, this one's much closer to Andrew Johnson, where it seemed uh, that they were, they were doing it out of spite uh, rather than for any, any reason other than that. Uh, so it seems that the Democrats want to embarrass this president. I mean, Pelosi has said that the impeachment is something that the president will carry with him for the rest of his life. Uh, I'm sure whoever the future nominee is of the party will, uh, will use this to try to score political points uh, in the general election. So I think there are a number of factors driving it. And I also think that uh, this is something that uh, you're not going to hear the end of, even if it ends in an acquittal, uh, you better believe the Democrats will uh, will be clamoring to uh, continue to embarrass this president, uh, I think in part because they, they literally uh, uh, just uh, cannot stand him and what he, uh, what he brings to Washington. He is a true disruptor, and uh, he does things out of the ordinary, and they don't like it. They would much prefer uh, business as usual and the status quo. Mm-hmm. And Rob, I would, I would guess the two most likely outcomes would be either A, dismissal, or B, acquittal. Is that right? That's correct, yes. Uh, there, uh, there are two articles of impeachment, of course, as, as your listeners know. There's uh, the, the abuse of power and there's the obstruction of Congress. 
Um, you know, both of those, uh, as Alan Dershowitz has said, uh, are, are on, on, on shaky constitutional ground. I mean, he, he thinks that uh, we would do irreparable damage to to our country uh, and, and uh, the Constitution if, if the, the president were convicted on uh, uh, on these articles, because neither of, I mean, neither of them really, uh, you know, abuse of power. What does it mean? It's not a criminal offense. Uh, uh, obstruction of Congress. You know, this president has said that he didn't allow certain people to testify for national security matters. There is something known as executive privilege, which has been invoked uh, by by every president uh, since George Washington. So, uh, yes, both of the articles of, of impeachment are, are are not nearly as uh, significant as as once was uh, once was uh, anticipated. And I think that that's one of the reasons that you're most likely to probably see an acquittal because of the charges that have been brought against this president. Mm-hmm. And I would guess that the president would most prefer an acquittal versus a dismissal. That way he feels like he's gotten um, a chance to be heard and his side presented and then the whole thing uh, written off as an acquittal. Yes, I, I, w- I would suspect that that's the case. I mean, there, and it's hard to know, um, you know how much to believe in terms of the reporting about what the president is telling so-and-so behind closed doors. I mean, is this really true? I mean, apparently there was a point in time when the president wanted this to be dismissed outright. So basically, uh, the trial would begin and end today. Uh, there were, there were, <laughs> Republicans would immediately vote to dismiss it. Um, but I think that that leaves open the question of whether, you know, it, why not just let the, the House prosecutors, these seven Democrats, present their case, um, let them, you know, share the evidence that they have, let Trump's lawyers respond with their evidence, and then have a vote, have a vote up or down whether or not he's going to be convicted or acquitted. Uh, I think that that's a much better outcome uh, in terms of providing some some closure and finality as opposed to leaving it open and having people question whether or not uh, Republicans were trying to short-circuit the process. And Rob, I go back to my original uh, remark about the Pro Bowl game that very few people care about or watch. Is that Do you think that's the case with America? Do you think they're they're riveted to their TVs during this impeachment, or do you think they're just moving on with their life and, and ignoring it? Well, I think that there's some uh, there's some heightened interest for sure. I mean, we saw cable news programs, uh, including Rachel Maddow, score some of their highest viewership in a long time uh, last week. Uh, that's certainly a reflection of Americans uh, consuming information about impeachment specifically in this president. Uh, we also have just had an incredible start to the year in terms of the uh, the amount of uh, events happening throughout the globe, uh, with, with certainly uh, uh, the Soleimani uh, killing and uh, the, the what we saw play out in Iran in the, in the subsequent days. So, uh, you know, it's hard to attribute it to any one thing, but I do think Americans recognize the historical importance of this moment. Now, the impeachment trial will begin at 1 o'clock every day, so most Americans will be at work, and I, I don't think people are going to necessarily be uh, pulling a uh, – uh, an NCAA uh, basketball <laughs> tournament where, you know, they're uh, sneaking out of the office to catch a game. Right. Uh, I, I don't think it's going to be that riveting, especially uh, since senators aren't allowed to talk. So there's not going to be those moments on the floor where they try to galvanize attention and have a viral moment, if you will. Yeah. Rob, let me take a little break. When I come back, let's talk about what we should expect from the 2020 March for Life. Rob Bluey is my guest, executive editor of The Daily Signal. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. I'm so glad to be talking to Rob Bluey. He's the executive editor of The Daily Signal. 
You can always head over to DailySignal.com for all these fantastic news stories. Uh, Rob, right before break, we were chatting about, uh, I wanted to get your your uh, take on what's going to be happening at the 2020 March for Life. Yes, well, it is uh, it's coming up this Friday. Obviously, it's always a big event in Washington, D.C. That, uh, that draws a lot of attention and interest. Um, it's, it's one of the largest gatherings, even, even though uh, it tends not to attract the attention that, uh, that other such events uh, tend to get. I mean, we just, for instance, had the Women's March, uh, which was on a, a very cold and, and rainy uh, day uh, over this past weekend. And uh, there, you know, uh, certainly generated a lot of attention from the Washington Post and other, other outlets. We will see if the March for Life, uh, which will have a lot more people in Washington, uh, commands that kind of media attention. It certainly should. And this year's theme is, uh, is uh, you know, quite timely. The, the theme is pro-life is pro-woman. And certainly we are, you know, having a lot of conversation with, uh, with a couple of female presidential candidates. Of course, uh, Elizabeth Warren and Amy Klobuchar just uh, secured the New York Times endorsement uh, and, uh, and are getting some, you know, renewed attention uh, for, for some of their views. But also, uh, you know, it's an issue that I think uh, – they have um, they they have really crystallized because this is the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment, which gave women the right to vote, and all of those suffragists, uh, Jeannie Mancini, who's the president of of the March for Life, uh, said that she studied the suffragists uh, very closely, and uh, not a single suffragist, those people who fought 100 years ago uh, for women to have this right, uh, was was pro-abortion. They were all pro-life, uh, from. Elizabeth Cady Stanton to Susan B. Anthony, uh, you go down the list, and they were strong advocates for for life and uh, and opposed to abortion. So I think that that sends a strong message about uh, about these uh, these heroes uh, that that uh, that we look up to today. And uh, and I'm glad to see that they're being honored by this year's March for Life. And and of course, the March for Life is always so exciting, Bill, because it brings so many young people to Washington, and it is so refreshing and encouraging uh, to see future generations care so passionately about this issue. Mm-hmm. You had a chance to uh, talk on your podcast, the Daily Signal podcast, to uh, Joe Grogan, director of the Domestic Policy Council at the White House, and you had a chance to talk to him about uh, religious freedom. I'd love to hear about that. That's right. Uh, it was very exciting to be over at the White House last week, and and, and Joe is uh, somebody who's a, a big advocate for, for these issues. Well, it was Religious Freedom Day last week, and, and President Trump announced three big initiatives uh, that would really boost religious freedom. Uh, the, the first involves uh, prayer in school. Uh, this administration really wanted to clarify and provide guidance that uh, students and teachers uh, have First Amendment rights that uh, that really are extend uh, to everybody. And it's not when you when you step into a school, it doesn't mean that you sacrifice those rights and that you should be able to to pray. And uh, look, this uh, we, we we've been down this this road, and it, this is a this is a hard fought battle. Uh, that there are those who want to uh, eliminate prayer in that setting entirely, and they try to punish those who do. We've done stories about football coaches, for instance, who uh, who lead a prayer after a game and are subsequently punished for that. Well, this administration is taking the side uh, that the students and and teachers should have uh, that right uh, under our First Amendment to do so. Um, so, and I'll mention the other two just briefly, Bill, if I if I could. I would love to hear uh, them because it's real a, interesting. The second, the second initiative uh, is uh, is trying to get the federal government wrapped around these these nine different uh, uh, or agencies to make sure that uh, that religious organizations are uh, treated fairly by the federal government. So uh, there's been some concern in the past 
that the federal government would have a bias or, or discriminate against uh, these religious organizations. So these uh, nine different agencies have come together and are attempting to put things straight. Um, so they don't uh, they don't do that. And finally, the last announcement was uh, involves the Supreme Court's Trinity Lutheran case, which uh, was a notable 2017 decision. Um, and the Office of Management and Budget, which is there in the White House, has issued some new guidance regarding grant making, uh, which provides uh, Trinity Lutheran was a case that involved the government giving a grant to a religious school and uh, some uh, some people disputing that and questioning whether that was uh, proper. And uh, what the government has now said is that, yes, it is, uh, though, especially if it's used for a secular purpose, in which case was a playground and the Trinity Lutheran case. So all good steps by this administration uh, to, to protect religious freedom. I asked, uh, I asked the director, Joe Grogan, uh, what it's like to work with the president on this issue, and he said uh, he is passionate about, uh, about religious freedom and, and really cares deeply about that. So we've heard him described as the, the most pro-life president in our nation's history. Certainly seems like on this issue he's, uh, he's an advocate uh, on behalf of religious freedom as well. All right, Rob, it seems like a lot of the candidates uh, in the Democratic side are still uh, offering the idea of, of free uh, college and relieving college debt. And I'm just wondering, uh, A, if I couldn't afford to go to college, is it fair that I then pay for the ones who could go, who got in debt, and also, uh, do they do this in Europe? They did, they did. I mean, this is this is certainly something that's been tried before, and uh, we've seen that it's not worked out so well. Uh, there's a great article by my my colleague and Daily Signal contributor Mary Claire Amsalem, um, uh talking about this uh, on the Daily Signal. I encourage your your listeners to check it out. Uh, but yes, this tuition free higher ed is uh, is something that uh, that people proclaim as uh, as free college, but uh, obviously somebody is going to have to pay for that, and it's. It comes to uh, comes out to be a big bill that's uh, that's levied on taxpayers uh, when they consider everything that goes into it. There's a much better way to go about this. First of all, uh, this expectation that everybody goes to to a four-year college, um, I, I think, is is a, a dangerous path for our country to go down. I mean, everybody should pick the path that they want to choose and that suits them best. I mean, some people may want to go to a two-year technical school. Well, there's mm-hmm. nothing wrong with that. We should encourage people to move into professions like that. In fact, there are a lot of professions uh, we've talked about on the show before how there are more job opportunities available in this country today than there are people to fill them. Right. Um, and so there's a lot of opportunities out there. And uh, and yes, guaranteeing free college, uh, free being in quotes, is uh, is going to be a hefty price tag on the rest of Americans to pick up. It would be a very expensive free item, wouldn't it? It certainly would. Well, it's like anything that, that a politician promises is free. Uh, there's always going to be somebody who's taxed and is going to have to pay for it. And, uh, and, and whether or not uh, – and I think that the, the, the fairness issue comes into play here. I mean, particularly those who have gone to college, have uh, you know, taken out student loans, have had to pay those loans off year after year – uh, for all of a sudden, you know, uh, the government to come in and uh, say that, you know, the next generation doesn't have to. Well, the, the the people that are going to have to pay for the next generation to do it are probably those in the workforce who will be taxed mm-hmm. uh, by the federal government to uh, to pick up the tab for this. Yeah. And uh, Representative Andy Barr from uh, Kentucky's 6th Congressional District in the House uh, made a brilliant commentary at the Daily Signal. And I encourage listeners to go to DailySignal.com to read it. But, Rob, maybe you'd give him a tease. Yes, well, it's about socialism and the threat that, uh, that we face in this, in this country. So Andy Barr is a, a great advocate for, 
for for freedom and liberty and and all the values that uh, that we stand uh, stand for uh, as uh, at the Heritage Foundation as conservatives. But you've seen proposals like not only like uh, the free college, but there were other things like Medicare for all, the Green New Deal, and Stop Wall Street Looting Act. All of these would threaten our free society in, in various ways, giving more power to the federal government and administration officials uh, when it really should be rooted uh, in, in the hands of the American people. I mean, we do not want the government to grow in the direction that some of these candidates are proposing, and it would really fundamentally transform uh, this country's uh, founding principles and values. Uh, free markets are the things that are going to increase the economic prosperity, and Andy Barr, I think, lays out a strong case for that. And just if I can summarize what he said in one sentence, which is fantastic, whenever and wherever governments embraced socialism, the result has been a loss of individual freedom, economic stagnation, diminished productivity, uh, deprivation, and shortages, misery, and death. There you go. There you go. And, you know, coming a day after uh, after Martin Luther King Day, where he get, delivered his famous speech talking about the Declaration of Independence and the promises they gave uh, future generations of Americans, I think it's worthwhile to, to, to reflect on those words you just read, Bill, because it is so true. That is what makes our country great. Yeah. Rob, always a pleasure to uh, have you on the show. Thank you so much for doing what you do. Are you going to be up late paying attention to what's going on in the Senate, or are you just going home and playing with your kids and having a normal life? Well, I'm going to do a mix of both. Okay. Obviously, the news never stops. So I know. We will, we, <laughs> we will be producing the news, but those kids uh, those kids need my love. I know so they do. With them too. <laughs> You're the best, Rob Bluey. Thank you so much for uh, being on the show today. Thank you. You bet. Rob Bluey's been my guest, executive editor of The Daily Signal. Make sure you go to dailysignal.com. We'll take a short break and be right back. Did you miss one of your favorite shows this week? Wish you could listen to that sermon again and again? Jump in the car partway through an interview that you wish you'd heard all of? Is there a show or an interview you heard that you would like to pass along to a friend? Download or share our free show podcasts at MyFaithRadio.com and listen anywhere, anytime. That's MyFaithRadio.com. Always appreciate Rob Bluey and enjoy him. Coming up next, Rebecca Ree's going to join us. And if you've ever been to her blog, you know she is a really charming, smart writer. She's a Hebrew scholar. Rebecca Ree, R-H-E-E dot net is her web address. And then coming up in hour two, we're going to have Dr. Mark Muska in studio. That is Ask the Professor. You can ask him anything. Like, Mark, why are you so smart? You can ask that. I don't know if he'll answer it, but you know. You can ask anything and send your questions via text. Let's get them started right now, 877-933-2484. Again, that number is 877-933-2484. Maybe you've had a question about the Bible uh, or you've had a conversation with somebody that didn't get resolved and you'd like to ask Mark a question about uh, the Bible or about uh, a discussion you had with someone, always welcome. Again, 877-93-FAITH. We'll take a short break and be right back with Rebecca Ree in just a few minutes.
Welcome back to the show. Always glad when I can talk to Rebecca Ree. She is a uh, writer and a great thinker and just a, a friend. When you start going to her blog, you're going to be feeling instantly like you're friends with her. And every time she comes on the show, I feel the same way. She attended Yale University and also Yale Divinity School and earned a Ph.D. in religion and literature from Boston University. Rebecca, welcome back. Oh, thank you for having me, Paul. Yeah, well, I always go to your, your uh, website at RebeccaRee.net for those listeners who need a reminder. And I always love to see what's going on in your, in your brain. It's always, uh, it's always interesting. Of putting it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, one of your most current entries this month in 2020 is called Baseball, and I found that fascinating. I'd love for you to share with our listeners what that's about. Okay. Well, as you know, uh, Bill, what I usually do in my blogs is I take a common object that I find some, somewhere throughout the course of my day, and I use it as a jumping off point to ponder a deeper issue, usually in an area where we could all use some encouragement. Which I love. And you do it beautifully, by so, the way. Well, that's that's my mission right now, because uh, we all have things that we run across in our, our daily lives that I think God's trying to speak to us through, but we often don't hear them and miss out on those opportunities. Um, so the latest um, blog that I wrote about is called Baseball, because I actually came across an actual baseball, and I'll tell you about that story. So um, the baseball post is really a meditation on the question. Um, you know, when we're struggling with a long-term issue, do we really have any say in where our heads go, like the space that our heads occupy when this thing keeps coming back to us um, again and again? So long-term hardships that are beyond our hardships that are beyond our control, do we really have any say where our heads go? when we're struggling with them. And as you know, I've written about in my blog that um, the hardship in our, in our family um, is my son's autism um, because it, you know, it affects us every day. It affects him every day. Um, but really the hardships that I'm talking about can be anything you can contend with on a daily, ba da daily basis that's taking a stab at your heart. It could be um, a physical illness. It could be a, um, a loss of someone. It could be some kind of disability, anything that just kind of scrapes away at you um, relentlessly. And, you know, your heart and, and your mind are constantly responding to it. So what do you do with that? Yeah, you framed that and, very well, just so you know, because I think you've just registered with a lot of people right now. Yeah. And so um, and what we tend to do is something that's not very helpful, is which we tend to do is compare. Like that's our first reflex response is we tend to compare and we go to our places in our head where it's glaringly obvious. Like we tend to compare our areas of weakness to other people's areas of strength, which is a dumb thing to do in the beginning. It's, it's the wrong kind of setup. But comparison really usually doesn't yield good fruit. Um, it yields the fruit of bitterness and suspicion about God's motives and um, it just, it's not a helpful thing to do, but sometimes we go out into the world and we're in a context of comparison where we can't help but compare because that's the actual setting that we're in. So that's what happens to us as a family sometimes when we go into settings that are set up for children because they're basically set up for typical children 
and not um, for autistic children. So that comparison is sort of already built into the equation for us when we go out as a family. And we had a, a day off from school recently, and so we decided we were going to take my son to a kids' museum. And so um, my kid is, uh, one of the things about autism is um, one of the uh, uh, hardships of it is when a kid goes, uh, an autistic kid goes into a new or an exciting setting, they often can't filter out the stimuli that's coming at them. Everything is kind of prioritized the same. So they've got, they can't just block out the things they're not interested in and focus on the things that they are interested in. Just everything's coming at them in a big tidal wave. So of course that creates certain responses of, you know, being overwhelmed and flailing around, or in my son's case, he just zips around from thing to thing and he can't really focus or stay on any one thing. And it's really hard and, and dangerous actually, because we have to keep up with him and make sure he doesn't, we don't lose sight of him or he doesn't hurt himself. So it seems like when we sometimes take um, my son into these kids' places, he actually loses what little language and, and self-control that he does have because it's like the wiring gets cut by all the stimulation. It's just in the moment he's overwhelmed and he can't access to tell us yes or no or even respond to our questions. So this makes my husband and me extremely hypervigilant. We've got this like down to a science. You know, we go, we've got our backpacks on so that we have our hands free. We've learned to sort of take the watching of him, like, you know, two guards over him. You take the, this flank, I'll take that flank and we'll split it up. So we were at the museum and we were kind of doing our routine and um, we were in our hypervigilant mode and uh, guess what? Our kid got lost anyway. No. <laughs> there was a thick knot of people, and we couldn't get through the knot of people, but my son just sort of went underneath where everybody's legs were, and there was more room, and he popped out the other side, and we couldn't see where he was. So um, we just panicked. We just looked everywhere. We couldn't find him. I immediately ran downstairs, said, block all the exits, and you know, luckily the museum staff, they had gone through this more than once. And so within five minutes, they had found um, my son. So we were, you know, within this, this, the whole thing probably lasted like eight or 10 minutes. But we felt like my husband and I, we felt like, you know, a, a few years had been shaved off of our lives in terms of like what it took out of us. <laughs> and it made, it made those, you know, stab wounds in our hearts that I've been talking about, those long-term um, places of wounding sort of resurface in a fresh way, that, that chronic grief and struggle that we go through because of the autism. So um, we're, you know, we're always struggling with that chronic grief and pain about his developmental deficits. And we're always trying to, we're always got this sort of uh, expectation over our heads, like try this, try that, try the other thing. We're always not at rest and constantly trying to find some way to help him navigate his world better. Like maybe if we equip him this way or give him that strategy. So, you know, it can be an exhausting thing. Um, and so we came home from this trip and we were glad that nothing serious had happened, but, you know, my husband and I are looking at each other and we're thinking, you know, how do we process this and where do we go? So, as with many of these chronic areas of, of suffering and um, of these, like what I call stab wounds in the heart, um, God may not 
take the actual cause of it away, but often I feel like he gives you something to lay next to it so that when you look at it, you look at it in concert with this other thing. And it becomes something, my, you know, my website, if you look at it, it, says you are an interpreter on there. And so it helps you to interpret what's happening to you in a way that would be different if you didn't have this other, other thing alongside. So a few days later, I was going for a run um, at the local track. And I just want to emphasize at this point so you have some idea. I am not a, what you would call a graceful runner. I am not like a gazelle going, you know, sprinting on the plane. I am more like a flailing platypus, like trying to just <laughs> make her way around the track um, <clears throat> as I log, you know, these laps. Um, so I was like, you know, one by one counting off the laps, trying to like, you know, get some exercise in and clear my head. And as I went around the track, I happened to see there was a chain mail fence dividing the bleachers from the track itself. And I happened to see a baseball wedged in the chain mail fence, um, like between the turf and the chain mail fence. And, you know, this baseball looked like it had been there for a while, because obviously I was running and it's winter and baseball is a spring sport and the the, the, uh, the field was set up for football at the time. So I knew it had been there for a while. And for me, I often, so often, like, put an emotional slant on things. I interpret things as, things as if they have, like, their own narrative. And <laughs> just, baseball just looked, like, so lost and forgotten. You know what I mean? Like, the princess up in the tower that nobody remembers totally. anymore. So popping and popping around the track, see this lost baseball. And I, this is what I'm thinking. It's like, wow, that's been totally forgotten about. And it, it's, you know, hopeless for that thing. Um, nobody cares about that anymore. And as I rounded the the, the track, um, something else popped into my head besides those observations, which was a statement. And the statement was this. It said, you're going to hit a home run. You think you're stuck inside the park, but you're not. I'll say that again. You're going to hit a home run. You think you're stuck inside the park, but you're not. And I heard that very clearly in my head. Wow. And it's kind of an arresting statement, you know, and it's especially arresting for me because it didn't sound like me. You know what I mean? Like I am not, um, I'm a catastrophic thinker. I'm a really tough critic on myself. I would make a terrible like cheerleader if you gave me like um, a megaphone and and put you know in mentally inside my head I'd be like you're doomed you know <laughs> be doing a terrible job at that you're not I'm not the person you want me to in that role so I was really surprised not only that I had this thought you're gonna knock one out of the park you think you're stuck but you're not but that um, but that I heard it so clearly hmm. um, so I had to do. You know, something. I had to decide what, what was I going to do with this thought. How was I going to interpret it? And I suddenly remembered a conversation that I had had with a friend like years before. And I, at that point, I was going through you know a, a different crisis of faith. Uh, we go through several of them during our lives, I think, if we're honest about it. And at that point, I had asked her, you know, what if God doesn't exist? What if he actually, I mean, the whole thing was in question for me at that point. Like, what if this is just a big fairy tale and all these, 
you know, exhortations to just hang on and believe. What if it's all hooey? There is no God. Um, you know, we're just fooling ourselves. And what I was really asking under that question was, what if there's really no one to take care of me? Mm. Like I need, like I need taking care of right now. And her, her aunt, she's a respected friend and very smart and, and very compassionate and had been in ministry for a long time. And so you would think she would have given me some like scripture or some theological answer or pointed me in, you know, to some text. But her answer really surprised me because it was so pragmatic. She said to me, it doesn't matter. She said, it doesn't matter to me if God exists or not, because God existing is a better narrative for me. And I was like, So, you know, what she was basically saying was, I'm choosing the story in which there's a loving God who exists, because I think I'm going to have a more fruitful and enriching life that way. So I'm just going to like, you know, if the image is almost like being at the craft table and throwing the dice. (laughs) It's like, I'm just going to throw those, those cosmic dice and just really count on that. There's a God because whether he exists or not, that's a better narrative for me. And Mm. that's where I'm going to rest. So um, I realized, you know, on some level, we all get to do this and, you know, choose the narrative. They used to have those stories when you were a kid, you know, choose your own story and you get to like, do you remember those that like, you know, you choose the page number that you would swap to depending on what, where you wanted the plot to go somewhere, you know, we have a choice as to the narrative. In fact, I think we're choosing what narrative we're going to believe all the time without realizing it. I think often we're choosing these really depressing and discouraging narratives all the time without realizing it. So at least, you know, we should come to the realization that, wait a minute, I just need to know that I am, in fact, making these choices, and I want to have some conscious say in what that choice is. So what I decided in the end, I chose to believe that the baseball was God talking to me, that he was offering me encouragement when he knew I needed it after the museum incident with my son. And I also chose to believe that things are going to get better with my son, even though I can't really see how that's going to work out. Um, and that the, um, and that when my son looks in my face, I want him to see someone who believes he's got a shot at life, you know, Mm -hmm. someone who believes in his narrative and where it's going. And, you know, you can ask the question, well, when you look in the mirror, what kind of narr- what are you seeing there in your face? And when people look in your face, what are they seeing? Like, what's the narrative? Do they see someone who believes they have a shot and that their life is going somewhere ultimately good? So um, I think what the baseball taught me when I laid it next to, you know, this museum trip was next time you hear a positive thought in your head, don't just immediately trash it. Because you need to give it some time and some room to do its thing, which is to make your biography just a little bit better. Okay. We have to start. Yeah, that, that is a, a fascinating observation, Rebecca. Um, and I, I love it. I love the, the narrative that you talk about that we, we're confronted with all day long, every day, what we're yep. saying to ourselves. And then yep. I also love that God is going to, uh, talk to a Hebrew scholar with an abandoned baseball. That's fascinating to me. 
Bye. Yeah. Okay. Let me take a short break. Rebecca Ree is my guest. You can go to her uh, website, Rebecca Ree, R-H-E-E dot net. Learn more about her and her blog. We'll take a short break and be right back. to the show. Awfully glad to have Dr. Rebecca Ree as my guest. She blogs at her website at RebeccaRee.net and I love her stories. I love uh, the way she'll take an everyday object and see uh, a story or a message or a point to be made. Uh, and if we could all be so uh, brilliantly observant, observant as she is, uh, I know we would uh, find tons and tons of things around us, but maybe we're just too distracted half the time to not see what God's trying to tell us. And Rebecca, you do this time and time again so beautifully. Oh, well, thank you. So I think we got time for uh, another story. Um, what, uh, maybe chat about the guitar. The blog about my um, the guitar um, is really um, a meditation that considers the question of what do we do when God does something nice for us and our response is not a nice one back. <laughs> that when we're kind of struggling with him in a long-term way and and we can see that he's just blessed us in a very specific way or a very significant way. And it just doesn't thrill our soul. Um, What are we supposed to do when we're kind of in that bad place? So um, my recent bad place that brought this, this question up was that I was physically under the weather. I was suffering from some nausea and some fatigue and I was very mentally worn down and discouraged. And I could have used some, you know, some TLC me time. Right. But um, my son was home from school because there was an ice storm. And so we were stuck inside. And my normal um, babysitter couldn't come, o- come over and give me a hand because she was stuck in her home as well. So um, it was just my son and me. Um, and he thought it was great, like hours and hours of time with mom. Um, but I was just, I had a pretty dim outlook on life at that point, that and that day. And I've noticed that there's this phenomenon that goes on in myself, which is when I am not well, um, my thinking tends to get proportionately whacked out. <laughs> like the, the more sick I am, the less clearly I'm thinking. And um, so I took it into my head that particular day, even though I was not uh, feeling well, and even though I was um, pretty low emotionally, but I was going to take my son swimming. My mom lives in an assisted facility right around the corner, and so we often go swimming there. And on a good day, um, this is a challenge because it requires me getting myself dressed and my son dressed, and we get in the pool and paddle around for a long time, and we get out and we have to do, you know, get ourselves dressed again, and it, it's a pretty big undertaking. Um, but um, he loves it so much that we do it. And we do it whenever we can. So this day, for whatever reason, I just thought I should take him swimming. Um, So did I really think about this? Did I pray about this? Did I even ask somebody wise um, about their opinion of this uh, idea? And, of course, the answer was absolutely not. Um, What I did was I just launched into the question. I looked at my son and I said, you know, do you want to go swimming? He said, no. So what we ended up doing instead of going swimming that day, which was going to the cultural mecca of all worlds, which is the Plan B dollar store down the street, <laughs> and um, 
you know, there's little narrow aisles. There's tons of stuff to look at. It's kind of a manageable place. You can pay with cash really quickly. And, you know, with getting my son out of the house. So I take my son into the dollar store and we're, you know, kind of navigating the aisles. And he takes his little hand and he, um, you know, snakes his hand into a pile of, of plastic items and pulls out this little plastic guitar. It's just a little guitar with four little strings on it. And you have to understand, right now, my son is going through a stringed instrument stage. He, he has a music therapist, and he's got a babysitter who's musical, and he loves the ukulele and the harp and the guitar. So he's really into stringed instruments. And how he found this thing in the, in the pile of all the things that were there, I didn't see it, but he certainly did. So we found the guitar. Um, as we're checking out of the store with it, he's happy to go home now and, you know, play with his new little toy. I could see almost in a very, like, clinical sense, like, very clearly as if it were under a microscope that God, um, that guitar was a gift from God that day. He knew how low I was feeling, and he was giving me this guitar for my son to help me out. And how my heart responded was not, oh, gee, thanks. I'm so grateful. Thank you for, for being so empathetic. What my heart said was, that's nice. God, but it's not nearly enough. Mm. Like, that's honestly what I felt like. That's nice, not enough. And that's not the first time I know that I've had that response, particular response from God with, uh, to God when he's given me things. I mean, significant things that I recognize. So, um, well, I might have, um, it just seemed like a drop in the bucket. And so I thought to myself, well, what are we supposed to do? I mean, we have to be honest. We're having this drop in the bucket response. We, you know, and so we could do, you know, one of like several things. We could self, you know, do self-condemnation. Well, that really doesn't do any good except to like put you further down the hole. Or you could ignore the anger. But my guess is that anger is tied to pain somewhere, and you should never ignore, you know, any kind of deep-seated pain. And then you could do something like try to numb it. Um, but there's always a price tag for whatever numbs you know, your pain or your, your exasperation. So I just basically came up with two things that we can do when we get to that place where we say, thanks God, but I'm still angry or thanks God, but things are still not cool between us, mm -hmm. you know, because the, the reason I was so sick and distressed were long-term stressors. I was under some long-term stress. Those things were still not okay with me. And I was still kind of upset with God about them. So the first thing is, is that, you know, like, let him have it. I just would say any God that's worth a speck of our worship knows what we're thinking anyway to begin with, knows what we're feeling anyway to begin with. So um, we're not like, you know, rocking his world or informing him of anything he can't see already. So we might as well just, you know, come clean about it. Um, there's an ancient Hebrew psalm that says, pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Um, and in that context, you know, even the worst complaint, even an expression of hatred, like, I just hate you about this. Why are you like this with me? You know, that, that can count as worship. I mean, I don't really understand how that arithmetic works, but I do believe the Bible like points us in that direction. So there's that is just like be brutally and savagely honest with God about what you are feeling, because if he's worth our worship, 
he knows it, and he can take it. Yeah. Boy, and then beautiful the remark. second thing, thank you. And yeah. then secondly, I would say, um, remember to say thank you anyway. You know, even if that guitar was just a drop in the bucket, you know, you're more than what I said in the blog. You're more than a pig squealing in the slaughterhouse. You know, you're a human being with a divine imprint on you. You have some dignity to you, so act like it. You can you can show some graciousness and some honor, and you can say, I honor you, and I thank you for this gift. I may be struggling in these other areas in our relationship, but I just want to, sh- to say I recognize this and thank you. And um, I think that just does something for our human spirit when we do those two things. Just be brutally honest, but also just remember to say that thank you anyway, even if it just feels like a drop in the bucket. Oh, that's such great wisdom, Rebecca. And I, um, I feel like I've learned several things today. So you have done a beautiful job of taking everyday objects and experiences and giving us lessons that will get lodged. I know lodged in my head for months to come. <laughs> Well, I'll keep them coming as long as they come to me. <laughs> well, I, I'm sure you will. Thank you so much for uh, being our guest today on the show. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. It was a true pleasure. Yeah, as, as it always is for me. Uh, Rebecca Ree is my guest, and her uh, website is net. You can go learn more about her and, and sign up to be on her blog and get it regularly. I recommend it. I'll take Thanks a short for listening. Break. I'll be Programming right back like with this is more. made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.